Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's just after dawn on the morning of Thursday the 14th of May 1943 and dozens of burned, shocked, exhausted and terrified men are huddled together on bits of wreckage from the Australian hospital ship Centaur, sunk a few hours earlier by a Japanese submarine despite being immune from attack under the Geneva Convention. Among the survivors is one woman, Sister Nell Savage the only one of the dozen nurses aboard Centaur to escape the burning, sinking wreck. With broken ribs, broken nose, perforated eardrums, ruptured palate, numerous lacerations and bruises, Nell's in a bad way, as she and Corporal Tom Malcolm cling to what was a deckhouse roof before Centaur was blown up and sent to the bottom of the sea. Now, As day breaks, Nell and Corporal Malcolm see, 50 yards away, a large raft crowded with men. There are other such makeshift vessels scattered around too, the survivors using pieces of wood to paddle. Some of these bits of flotsam are painted red, all that remains of the red crosses that were supposed to guarantee Centaur's safety. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the special Forgotten Australia Anzac Day episode, Sister Savage and the Centaur Sinking. The men of the large raft tied a rope to assistant storeman Jim Waddiston, and he swam to the deckhouse so that he could pull Nell and Corporal Malcolm to them. As Nell stepped onto this larger raft, she saw her first shark. She and other survivors would see many, many more with some saying the tigers and grey nurses numbered in their dozens and were layered beneath them. 
On the raft, Nellie, who was wearing only her torn pyjamas, was given khaki trousers by one man, while another gave her his greatcoat. The latter garment, she said, saved her life because, otherwise, she surely would have died of exposure. Nevertheless, Nell shared it. She took Robert Westwood, the 15-year-old cabin boy who'd sustained burns, as her special charge. Nell tended to him as best she could and kept him as warm as possible with the coat. Sister Savage did what she could to care for other survivors too, bathing wounds with salt water and wrapping them in bandages retrieved from a medical kit found floating in the sea. In one case, Nell massaged a man's feet to keep his circulation going. The men roped together their ragtag flotilla, which included the large main raft, hatch covers, and a waterlogged lifeboat that had been damaged in the attack and floated free of Centaur. Around 9 or 10 that morning, they saw a plane and sent up flares, but their hopes were dashed because the aircraft was too high and visibility was bad. The survivors also saw a couple of ships far off in the distance, but again, these vessels didn't see them. Exhaustion meant that some men fell from the wreckage they were clinging to into the sea. Every time this happened, his mates would pull him back to safety before the sharks made short work of him. But even being on a raft didn't guarantee safety. Mark Hoggins was horrified when a shark lunged up onto his raft before he and his friends fought it off with their makeshift paddles. On the main raft, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Outridge, the only surviving doctor of the 18 who'd sailed with Centaur, Nell Savage took charge of the meagre rations they'd managed to salvage from the sea. These comprised 2,000 milk tablets, a tin of prunes, a tin of raisins, some meat extract, two pounds of chocolate, and two gallons of water. This for some 30 people on the main raft, and more than that number again dotted on the others. Thinking it might be four days until Centaur was missed and they were rescued, Nell doled out these supplies carefully. A typical meal was a lick of meat extract, a milk tablet, two prunes and a mouthful of water. Soon enough, as survivor Ronald Moat would say, the survivors felt like they could have drunk the ocean dry. As the day progressed, there was no escaping the sun. Many men were naked or near enough, their clothes having been torn away by centaur suction and ripped by debris. Survivors were soon sunburned, adding to the misery caused by burns, cuts, bruises and other injuries. Nell was clearly banged up, black eye, split lip, but she didn't complain of pain. Indeed, the men she was with on the raft had no idea she had broken ribs until much later. Nell kept the men's spirits up by reciting the rosary, with even non-Catholics joining in these prayers, described by survivor Alex Cochran as the most fervent to ever pass their lips. More secularly, the survivors also tried to keep their morale high by singing songs, including Roll Out the Barrel and Waltzing Matilda. As we've heard, not all men who made it into the water would make it home alive. Indeed, one estimate says 200 people got off Centaur. If that's true, then more than two-thirds of those died soon after. Owen Christensen of North Fitzroy had been clinging to a plank near another man hanging on to a similarly precarious bit of debris. This fellow, a medical orderly, became delirious and said he was so thirsty he was going to swim off for a drink of fresh water. Owen tried to convince him to stay, but the man struck out, 
getting no further than 15 feet before he threw his arms up and sank. Owen Christensen dived for him, but to no avail. Darkness descended on Friday night, and before dawn on Saturday, the survivors were faced with a fresh terror. Around 3.30am, Cook Frank Martin clearly saw the silhouette of a vessel about half a mile away. Men from one raft fired flares before realising this wasn't a rescue ship, but a Japanese submarine that had just surfaced. Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Outridge ordered silence and all lights extinguished. Some survivors expected a storm of machine gun bullets. When that didn't come, others thought the submarine lurking in wait for rescue ships. Ronald Moat said, quote, We just lay down and hoped they had not seen our flares. Nell Savage didn't see the submarine, but she did see a green light. And she heard the vessel, and something very sinister. Quote, we heard the drone of an engine suddenly near to us and voices calling, Cooey! Near me was a man who'd been in Rabal, and he said suddenly, Don't answer, they tried that in Rabal. They're Japanese. Remember, sailors never say Cooey, they say Ahoy. So we kept very quiet, and all we could see was a small green light. I felt tense because I knew they were Japanese, and I thought I might finish up in Tokyo after all. Tokyo? or somewhere far, far worse. According to Ronald Moat, the submarine remained on the surface for about half an hour and then disappeared. Before dawn, one of the worst burned soldiers, Private John Walder, died of his injuries. Nell led a prayer service for this man as the men slipped him over the side of the raft for a sea burial. Everyone was relieved when the sharks left the body alone as it floated away. That Saturday, another plane was spotted. The men were wildly excited and then plunged into despondency when it was clear they hadn't been seen. But the next plane? That was the charm. This was an Australian Avro Anson providing anti-submarine support to a convoy. At 1.40pm, about to return to base, the pilot saw an American warship escorting a cargo vessel and then, southeast of that, a flare shooting up into the sky. The pilot flew to investigate, first seeing a massive oil slick, then debris, and then, to his amazement, dozens of survivors on rafts. He had no idea that any ship had been sunk because Centaur wasn't yet officially missing. The plane's pilot flashed the ship, which was the US destroyer Mugford, telling it to rescue the survivors. As it turned out, a lookout on Mugford had at the same time spotted debris on the horizon and informed his captain. The Avro Anson swooped low and flew over the survivors, the pilot flashing a message to tell them he'd summoned help. Now, for the first time since Centaur sank, Nell Savage burst into tears of relief. Mugford reached the survivors around 2.15 in the afternoon. 34 hours after Centaur had gone to the bottom. What the American soldiers aboard Mugford saw astounded them. Dozens of figures, oil slick, sunburned, blistered, were huddled on rafts as dozens and dozens of sharks carved through the sea around them. What the Americans heard was even more astounding. From these figures, a woman's voice called out a warning about those sharks. Brave American sailors jumped in and swam to the survivors as their mates fired revolvers, rifles and even machine guns to keep the grey nurses and tiger sharks at bay. 
The rafts were hauled alongside Mugford and Jacob Ladders put over the side. 332 people had set sail from Sydney on Centaur. Just 64 were taken onto Mugford. Centaur's men cheered Nell Savage as she was brought aboard. Survivors were taken to a military hospital in Brisbane. The National Archives of Australia has an extensive collection of digitised, originally secret documents about Centaur. A Department of Defence memo dated Sunday 16th of May 1943 set out the known basic details of the attack, sinking and the survivors' experiences, including the sighting by three witnesses of what was believed a Japanese submarine at about 3.30am that second night. The memo said a public announcement about Centaur would be delayed until next of kin were notified and that publicity censors in Brisbane had been told to prohibit any newspaper reference to the sinking and to deny journalists access to survivors until further notice. This was in part because Australian Prime Minister John Curtin wanted to coordinate with General Douglas MacArthur over the release of the information. So, for the time being, the Australian public were in the dark. On the day the memo was being circulated, Sunday the 16th, the Savage family's local priest in Gordon telephoned to say he'd learned that Nell was in hospital in Brisbane. Nell's mum and dad, Henry and Sarah, and her sister Kitty, who'd given up stenography to become a nurse, now at home on leave from her own hospital ship duties, weren't told anything more. They just assumed that she was ill again with seasickness. It wasn't until Tuesday they learned Nell had been injured as a result of enemy action. Sarah and Kitty got the train north to Brisbane that night. By then, the story couldn't be kept secret any longer. Centaur was front-page outrage in the evening papers. Not just in Australia, but in allied nations. The Melbourne Herald's editorial on the 18th of May can be taken as representative of the response. Its headline, quote, A foul atrocity at sea. The editorial confirmed we were at war, quote, with an enemy of the most brutal and unscrupulous nature to whom civilised standards of humanity mean nothing. The piece continued, There is not the slightest possibility of doubt that the murder of the ship's crew, medical staff and nurses was deliberate and premeditated. That day, Prime Minister Curtin had made a statement to Federal Parliament, quote, It is with the deepest regret that the Commonwealth Government has heard of the loss of the Australian hospital ship Centaur, and I know the news will come also as a profound shock to the Australian people. The attack, which took place within a few miles of the Queensland coast, bears all the marks of wantonness and deliberation. Not only will it spur our people into a more acute realisation of the type of enemy against whom we are fighting, but I am confident also that this deed will shock the conscience of the whole civilised world and demonstrate to all who may have any lingering doubts the unscrupulous and barbarous methods by which the Japanese conduct warfare. General Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in the Southwest Pacific area, said, quote, I cannot express the revulsion I feel at this unnecessary act of cruelty. Its limitless savagery represents a continuation of a calculated attempt to create a sense of trepidation through practice of horrors designed to shock normal sensibilities. Like Prime Minister Curtin, he said the effect would only stiffen Allied resolve. Quote, 
the enemy does not understand, he apparently cannot understand, that our invincible strength is not as much of body as it is of soul and rises with adversity. The Red Cross will not falter under this foul blow. Its light of mercy will but shine brighter on our way to inevitable victory. Reporters were now allowed access to hospitalised survivors. Speaking from his bed, Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Outridge spoke for all when he said quietly but firmly of the dead, quote, Their devotion will not be forgotten, nor will their murder be left unavenged. This sentiment would be expressed just a week later in the production and distribution of one of Australia's most famous wartime propaganda posters. It showed Centaur ablaze, an explosion ripping its side, the vessel going down by the head as men leapt into the sea from its sides and rising stern. In the foreground, a man and a woman, meant to be Corporal Malcolm and Sister Ellen Savage, clung to a bit of wreckage in dark, oily waters. The text across the top read, Work, save, fight, and continued across the bottom, and so avenge the nurses. A second, less remembered poster showed a later moment, with Centaur's stern right up out of the water as its burning bow went beneath the waves. Near the sinking vessel was a crowded raft as more men tumbled over the ship's sides. This text implored, Save for the brave. An inset quote read, Let us avenge the nurses and bore Prime Minister Curtin's signature. While 268 people had died, revised down from initial reports of 299, the focus of anger would be on the 11 nurses, wonderful examples of merciful Australian womanhood who'd been slaughtered in cold blood. Yet there was one shining survivor whose example gave the tragedy, if not a silver lining, then at least a glimmer of hope and dignity. This was Sister Ellen Savage, even if newspaper reports initially misnamed her as Eleanor Savage. The Sydney Sun's report on Tuesday the 18th of May was headlined, Sydney Nurses Heroism, Prayer for Dying Man. Lieutenant Colonel Leslie Outridge told the Sydney Morning Herald that Nell Savage had been wonderful, quote, She must have been in great pain all the time, but she never said a word about it. Her leadership was a great factor in the morale of the party. These initial newspaper articles contained many of the quotes and information you've heard so far, but it should be noted that these early articles didn't always align with later accounts or with evidence given at the War Crimes Commission inquiry. The discrepancies, which are more in minor detail than in the substance of the sinking and subsequent events, would appear to have arisen partly because survivors saw and heard different things from different vantage points. Recollections would also have been coloured by their shock and exhaustion. Yet sloppy reportage was also a factor, starting with reporters getting Ellen's name wrong. This was possibly the result of journalists scrambling to file their stories once they had the go-ahead from the military censor. Mistakes were then echoed through other reports. For instance, Nell was widely quoted as saying she'd grabbed her rosary beads from her cabin and used them while she was leading survivors in prayer. But a few days into her recuperation, she gave another interview to print reporters and to a newsreel crew in which she set the record straight. There'd simply been no time to take her rosary beads. Chances are, if she'd stopped to get them, she likely would have died. 
Nell Savage's bravery was the stuff of stirring newspaper stories, yet she was clearly suffering deeply, physically, emotionally, mentally and spiritually. On the 23rd of May, the Sunday Mail in Brisbane reported, quote, She is still very weak, still suffering from shock, and the nurses who look after her say that she does not sleep easily at night. Over and over in her mind, she relives the tragedy of the centaur and the tragedy of her companion nurses who had been her friends during the months they trained together. That is why she is shy of newspapers and cameramen. The piece quoted Nell saying to reporters, Please be kind to me and don't ask me too much. I'm not important. After all, those other girls who were with me... She trailed off and broke down, unable to keep speaking right at that moment. Nell was still quiet when an Australian Women's Weekly reporter came to visit. By this time, her mother and sister had at least arrived to cheer her up. So too did the decorations in her hospital room, water lilies, sweet peas, roses and gifts given by the nurses looking after Nell. She gave the Women's Weekly reporter a brief account of the sinking. As for how she felt now, Nell said simply, I'm grand myself, but so miserable about my friends. Speaking to the Women's Weekly and other papers, survivors in the hospital had nothing but praise for Nell. Young Bob Westwood, also in the ward, said she was the most wonderful person he'd ever known and that, quote, I owe my life to Sister Savage. Nursing orderly Vincent McCosker had made several trips with her and said, quote, Sister Savage was always great to us in the wards. She was so friendly to all. As soon as I am allowed up, the first place I will go will be to visit Sister Savage. James Coulson of the medical staff had been on the raft with her and explained her devotion to caring for the wounded hadn't stopped when Mugford had arrived. Quote, when we got aboard the rescue ship, she wanted to assist the medical officer with the casualties. He had forcibly to insist that she rest. Private Ronald Usherwood had known Nell since Aranya. Quote, she was always a favourite of mine and I was not surprised at how gallantly she behaved. When she was on the raft, she asked the men, how do I look? Is my eye very black? They answered, yes sister, you'll be alright, you haven't lost any of your beauty. She always had such an infectious laugh and if anyone said something a bit funny when we were working in the wards, you could hear her laugh all over the ship. Nell's mother Sarah was grateful but somber when she spoke to Women's Weekly. Quote, it is so wonderful to know Nell is safe, but I feel so sad for the mothers of the other girls. I knew so many of them by their voices on the telephone when they rang up to speak to Nell. Arthur Waddington, who'd been the nurse's steward since Centaur was commissioned in March, told the Australian Women's Weekly fondly of the fun times they'd had at Matron Jewel's party and the horror that had followed. Quote, I'll never forget my last glimpse of those gallant nurses. As I jumped from the centaur, which was ablaze from stern to stern, I had a momentary vision of some of them standing on deck waiting for the lifeboats that would never be launched. Voice cracking with emotion, Arthur Waddington continued, quote, Matron Jewel was a wonderful woman, and so were all her nurses. I can't bear to think that all except Sister Savage went down. They were always so jolly and pleasant that it was a pleasure to look after them. Mother's Day is around the corner. 
Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. By the 11th of June, Nell was back at home with her family in Gordon. It had been another two months before she was back at work at the Australian General Hospital. Nell would not again be a hospital ship nurse, though her sister Kitty continued such service, which had to give the Savage family some nervous nights. On the 8th of September, Nell, who, as we've heard, was mistakenly called Eleanor in the newspapers, met the world's most famous actual Eleanor, that is, Roosevelt, when the American president's wife visited wounded soldiers and staff at the AGH. In August 1944, Nell was herself in a bed in her own hospital, recovering from an unspecified illness when she learned that she was to receive the George Medal for Bravery. Her citation read, Although suffering from severe injuries received as a result of the explosion and subsequent immersion in the sea, she displayed great heroism during the period while she and some male members of the ship's staff were floating on a raft, to which they clung for some 34 hours before being rescued by an American destroyer. She rendered conspicuous service whilst on the raft in attending to wounds and burns sustained by other survivors. Her example of high courage and fortitude did much to maintain the morale of her companions during their ordeal. A year after this citation, in August 1945, the Americans bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the war against Japan was over. But the end of the war brought no closure for Centaur survivors and the families of those who died. Back in 1943, the Australian government had lodged a protest with the Japanese government about Centaur's sinking. In late November that year, a Japanese information board spokesman denied that one of their submarines had been responsible. He claimed the Allies had sunk the ship themselves. This, said Australia's Minister for the Army, Francis Ford, was just too silly for words. It was clearly the desperate claim of a country trying to save face in the face of worldwide condemnation of its cowardly act. In mid-August 1944, around the time Nell Savage got the George Medal, the Australian Government's War Crimes Commission began an inquiry in Melbourne into the sinking of Centaur. Dozens testified, including Nell, who told her story on the 29th of that month. The inquiry's focus was on establishing that a war crime had been committed. Witnesses agreed that Centaur had been clearly marked and lit up as a hospital ship, that it had not been carrying munitions, that the night had been clear, and that the vessel had been destroyed by a massive explosion and had sunk in three minutes. Many testified to seeing or hearing the Japanese submarine on the second morning. Investigations would continue after the war and conclude in December 1948 without any war crimes charges being laid. 
most investigators and historians agree that the most likely culprit was the Japanese submarine I-177, captained by Hajime Nakagawa, who'd later be convicted of ordering the machine gunning of survivors from torpedoed ships and serve four years in prison as a B-class war criminal. Sister Nell Savage would suffer heartache in the year after she survived Centaur's sinking. Her father Henry died in December 1943, and her mother Sarah passed away just six months later. As the most recognisable survivor, the face of Centaur, for want of a better phrase, Nell Savage did her utmost to keep the memory of her fallen sisters and brothers alive in Australia's memory. She did this in small and large ways. On the 14th of May, 1944, the first anniversary of the sinking, Nell placed a classified notice in the Sydney Morning Herald that simply remembered her dead friends. As a war heroine, she was in demand. In May 1945, she returned to Corindai to open the Red Cross Ball. A month later, reportedly at the request of the men and managers of the government shipbuilding yards in Sydney, Nell launched the Army's newest supply vessel. After the war was over, Nell continued to serve on the staff of the AGH until she was demobilised in March 1946. The next month, she went back to work for the New South Wales Public Health Department. A year later, opening the Daily Telegraph newspaper, Nell got a wonderful surprise when she learned that the New South Wales branch of the Florence Nightingale Memorial Committee had awarded her a postgraduate scholarship for a diploma in hospital administration. This course was to commence at the prestigious Royal College of Nursing in London in October 1947. Nell Savage was the first New South Wales nurse to receive the scholarship. Confusingly though, the committee had not yet raised the £700 needed to cover the cost of the course, travel and accommodation, so a public appeal was made. Sydney's Truth newspaper ran a little editorial praising Nell's gallantry. It declared, Such women help make a nation. Australians are proud of her. Just not so proud they'd actually dip into their pockets in any great numbers. Over the next two weeks, just £97, three shillings, were subscribed. With the cut-off date looming, the Australian Red Cross came to the rescue and made up the shortfall. Nell Savage sailed at the end of June and would be away for 18 months. In addition to gaining another qualification and visiting numerous British hospitals to see how they operated, Nell was presented to the royal family in May 1948 and, on her way back to Australia, had an audience with the Pope, which was a great honour for any Catholic. Arriving back in Sydney in December 1948, she would two months later return to her roots when she was appointed supervising sister at the Royal Newcastle Hospital. Given Nell Savage was the most qualified nurse in New South Wales, it had been expected she'd be made Director of Nursing. But according to her entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography, Nell was passed over by the medical superintendent because he believed she was, quote, entrenched in the old school mode, wanting to maintain subservience and military discipline, whatever that meant. In May 1949, Nell, who was a founding member of the College of Nursing, represented the profession on a four-day Queensland tour. 
During this visit, she received numerous checks for Centaur House, the newly opened residential, educational and social centre for nurses in Brisbane that Nell herself had been instrumental in establishing. Back in Sydney in August 1949, Nell and another heroic nurse of World War II, Sister Vivian Bullwinkle, survivor of the Banker Island Massacre, took part in a big legacy ceremony for war orphans. There wasn't a dry eye at the cenotaph in Martin Place as they led two little fatherless children between a guard of honour to lay wreaths. Each year, Nell Savage would also attend in Sydney an Anzac Day reunion of army nurses held after the march. In January 1951, Nell was appointed matron of Rankin Park, which was the branch of Newcastle Hospital devoted to the care of patients with chest complaints. Through that decade, Nell served as a member of the College of Nursing's Council and was its president from 1957 to 1958. Each year, when Anzac Day rolled around, Nell's name could usually be found in newspaper stories about the nurses' march and reunion lunch in Sydney. In May 1953, she and Ronald Spud Jones represented Centaur survivors in Sydney at a ceremony commemorating the 10th anniversary of the sinking. Nell's story reached a new generation, many of whom had no memory of the war, when, in 1955, it was dramatised on radio by the ABC for broadcast as part of Legacy's Anzac Day Eve ceremonies in Australian schools. In 1963, Nell was one of six Centaur survivors to lay a wreath at the Cenotaph on the 20th anniversary of the sinking. Four years later, no longer in the best of health, matron Ellen Savage retired from Rankin Park Chest Hospital after 38 years in the nursing profession. She moved back to the family home in Gordon, which she shared with her sister Winifred. Over the next two decades, Nell Savage remained active in charity work for Legacy and did her best to keep Centaur's memory alive. She appeared in the Australian War Memorial film Australia Remembers with the program shown on the ABC on Anzac Day in 1978. Anzac Days would also see her occasionally sought out by newspaper writers. One of these penned an article for the Sydney Morning Herald in 1981. In this piece, the journalist asked whether Australians were coming of age now that Anzac Day was more about acknowledging the horrors of war and celebrating the role that women and Aborigines had played in our defence. The article gave a brief rundown of Nell's centaur experience before explaining she, quote, doesn't like to talk much about it today apart from saying, I'll never forget it. It's as vivid as ever. The writer of this Sydney Morning Herald piece, Tony Stevens, then early in his career with the paper. His father, Britt Stevens of Braidwood, had gone down with Centaur. Tony wrote, quote, I hadn't turned four years old and have just one memory of him. He came home on leave and put his helmet on my head. It fell to the chin. It was dark inside. A priest came later to tell mother and the childhood optimism couldn't understand the tears. Surely he would turn up on one of those lovely Queensland islands. Two years later, Anzac Day 1983, Sydney siders tuning in to 2BL Radio heard a program called Scarlet and Grey, which told the stories of Australian army nurses, including an interview with Nell. And two years after that, 
On Anzac Day 1985, Nell Savage, now 72, followed her usual observance. That year, the nurses' luncheon was held at Sydney Hospital. Remembrance and reunion over, Nell went outside to get a taxi back home to Gordon. She collapsed and died a little later that day. Anzac Day. Nell Savage was survived by her sisters and on the 50th anniversary of Centaur's sinking, the 14th of May 1993, they gathered in Coolangatta for a ceremony at Point Danger by the sea to unveil a memorial to those who died. Nine survivors were in attendance. So too was a man called Bill Records. He'd come all the way from California. Bill had been a young American sailor in World War II and he'd been aboard Mugford. During his service, Bill had survived a kamikaze attack and had seen Nagasaki in the wake of the atomic bomb. But as Tony Stevens, covering the story for the Sydney Morning Herald, wrote, quote, What he remembers most vividly, as if it were yesterday, is the Centaur Rescue and Ellen Savage. A few years earlier, Bill Records had found the Savage family and he learned that Ellen had died. He wrote to her sister Kathleen saying, quote, I only saw Ellen from a distance on that frightful afternoon and I did not speak to her. But the courage and the strength that came from that woman in a time of great sorrow has remained with me. Ellen Savage has been a sort of a part of me. I'll never forget her. My memory of Ellen, perched on that raft with all the other oil-soaked and wounded survivors, we could see dozens and dozens of vicious-looking sharks slicing in the churning sea and around the wounded survivors. The crew was electrified by the sound of a woman's voice. We were stunned into silence as we watched the small figure of a woman sitting there among all that terrific death and destruction, holding her head up high and ready to take charge. Kathleen and Winifred Savage liked meeting Bill Records, and they said they thought Ellen would have too. As for Bill, with shining eyes, he said to the sisters and to Tony Stevens, quote, Ellen Savage was majestic. In the decades after Centaur's sinking, there was much conjecture and controversy as to where the wreck lay. Second officer Gordon Rippon, who'd been on the midnight watch, had taken the last navigation fix a few minutes before the torpedo hit. Gordon Rippon survived, and he told the captain of Mugford he believed Centaur had gone down 24 miles 70 degrees true from Point Lookout. Many investigators had long believed this was incorrect. But veteran shipwreck hunter David L. Mearns, the man responsible for finding the HMAS Sydney and Cormoran, felt that Gordon Rippon had probably been right. Using this information and other observations made by Gordon Rippon and fellow crew members, David L. Mearns spearheaded a publicly funded search for Centaur that commenced in April 2008. On the 20th of December the following year, he and his team found the vessel. It was less than one nautical mile from where Gordon Rippon had said. Centaur's resting place, a little over 2,000 metres below sea level, has been declared a war grave. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. 
As noted at the start of this episode, there's much, much more to this story, particularly the war crimes investigation and how Centaur was found. If you want to know more, get your hands on those books I mentioned. The titles again, Christopher S. Milligan and John C. Foley's Australian Hospital Ship Centaur, The Myth of Immunity, and David L. Meehan's The Shipwreck Hunter. If you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can do so by becoming a patron. For just a few bucks a month, you'll be contributing to the research, writing, and production of new episodes. As a thank you, you'll get early access to episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, and the full-length audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. Patrons also get access to a selection of photos, files, and original newspaper articles I use to make each episode. You'll also get a shout-out in Forgotten Australia. A big thank you to Pat Saunders, who became a patron supporter this weekend. Alright, I'm about to record the next bonus episode about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's very, very strange spiritualist tour down under, and it's no word of a lie when I say it includes ectoplasm, a psychic dog, and a teleported shark. I'm also about to record the next four chapters of Australia's Sweetheart. They'll be available in the next few days for patrons, and I hope you enjoy them. If you do want to become a supporter, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or you can get there via ForgottenAustralia.com forward slash support. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.